This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. I've got a few books that I want to let you know about as we go through Ecclesiastes that are at the Resource Center. This one is called Ecclesiastes, Why Everything Matters by uh, Philip Ryken. If I could recommend one resource, uh, this would be it, just simply because he does a great job explaining the background information, uh, but also... um, He does a great job making it relevant and connecting because they're basically reworked sermons is what they are. So I almost didn't put this out there because I thought, well, if everybody reads like really good sermons on Ecclesiastes, they may may just not come and read this, but uh, I trust you'll come anyway. So here we go. Want to make you aware of this. Uh, It is the best resource I found. It's also one of the most expensive. So I forget what it is, but it's pretty expensive. We're eating some of the costs, so we discounted it for your benefit. Um... On Kindle, I think it's eight ninety nine. So that's that's a cheaper, much cheaper route. That's less than half what it cost uh, in the hardback. If you want it, also we have a book with a different cover. The cover out there has spilled milk on the cover, but this cover is called Joy at the End. This one says Joy at the End of the Tether: The Inscrutable Wisdom of Ecclesiastes by Douglas Wilson. Uh, this book is. Uh, um, it is good. It is interesting. It is a fascinating read. I don't agree with every word. If you buy the book, there's one pa- uh, paragraph in particular you'll probably guess. I guess. I guess. Th- I bet this was the paragraph he didn't agree with. So I'll let you know that. But overall, it's a very, very good book. And uh, both of these will be available at the Resource Center for you. We have more coming in of the Wilson book. Uh, we only could get a few, but we'll have more coming in. Let you know about that. Last week we opened the book of Ecclesiastes. And we met the author who is called the preacher. Koheleth is his name. Um, the assembler, the gatherer, the teacher, whatever you want to call him. Many speculate that he is Solomon, which certainly seems like a fair guess. We'll see that in what we read today, though he never calls himself Solomon. And he begins the book with a statement of his philosophy of life. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And so he begins to talk about life being meaningless by being like a vapor that you can't grab it, you can't hold on to it. It's like a mist that appears for a moment and then it is gone. And the, the point he makes that we talked about last week is that one of his cases in point is just look at life. You work and work and work and there's no real change. The earth remains the same. You don't make a dent in anything. You die and the reality is that people will forget about you very quickly just like you have forgotten about all the people that go before you. So he talks about this, and, but he does it as talking about life under the sun. So he is presenting, a philo- um, he's presenting an, an, an um, evaluation of life apart from God. And he's drawing the conclusion that life apart from God ends in meaningless, meaninglessness. And so last week we looked at a poem that he wrote, a poem on meaninglessness. And um, we tried to break that down. But today's not a poem. This isn't just some guy who's depressed, um, wearing a hoodie over in the corner of Starbucks, writing sad poems or something. This is a guy who now is going to move from poetry to tell us he's a king. And he's going to go autobiographical, and he's going to begin to discuss his own pursuit of knowledge 
and experience and how he has investigated the meaning of life um, not philo- merely philosophically, which last week it could have looked very philosophical, but practically. So he's going to walk us through some of his pursuits. Let's read beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1. We'll go through the middle of verse 2. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge." And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after win. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, I made myself pools from which, no, uh, which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my, fa- my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward in all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended. In doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you how we encounter you and meet you in unexpected places sometimes in your word, and we pray that would be the case today. Lord, we pray that you would speak loudly and clearly to our souls, that we would embrace the warnings that your word lovingly gives us, and that we would pursue you. Lord, show us Jesus in his glory, in his grace, in his love, in his nearness today. We pray that you would shine bright as we hear your word today and that all other pursuits would be seen for what they are, meaninglessness. Oh God, speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, the preacher gives two pursuits in the passage we just read. The first pursuit is found in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and it is the pursuit of, well, basically I would say it's the pursuit of understanding everything. That's what he said he pursued. He wanted to understand everything. Look at uh, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. So what he's saying is I'm going to pursue a, a, an evaluation, an observation of everything. That's a pretty big pursuit. Uh, but he is a pretty big guy. He is the king over Israel in Jerusalem. He applies his heart to wisdom. There's no one who has the wisdom he has that he tells us later in this passage. Uh, he's applying his heart to seek out wisdom as to what happens on earth. But note the direction of his pursuit. He starts out saying that I'm observing everything under heaven. I am observing everything under the sun. He is not pursuing wisdom and knowledge with a view towards God. And when we, any of us set out on a pathway to wisdom and knowledge without God, we will end up at the exact place the preacher does. Because Proverbs 1.7 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If we do not step out and pursue the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge in the fear of the Lord, acknowledging God, looking to God, seeking to understand life from God's perspective, then every road is a dead end. That's the point he makes. Every road is a dead end under the sun. As we wade into Ecclesiastes and to his writings and his autobiographical reflections, we must note, where is he making observations under the sun? And at points in the book, he makes observations above the sun, meaning with a God-directed perspective. So he does have reference to God in this book. Uh, we're just starting out with uh, the most depressing parts. Um, but he does make observations. So we want to always look, how is he speaking to us? Because I said last week, Ecclesiastes, which means... The, uh, which is translated here, the preacher uh, or the gatherer or whatever. But the, uh, Ecclesiastes, this guy, he, as he writes, he, is, he will meddle with us, and he'll particularly meddle with us if we are not clear on, is he talking under the sun? Or is he talking from God's perspective? And he says here, my pursuit was clearly under the sun. The destination of all pursuits of knowledge without reference to God, end in the same place, and the road is wearying. And here's the reality. There's really only two ways this happens. You pursue knowledge and observation of life under the sun, the meaning of life. You look at the meaning of life without reference to God, and you end up with him, meaningless, or you end up with absurdity. If you want to try to find meaning in a universe without God, you end up with statements that are absurd. Continue, consider this statement. This is a statement that, uh, and I'm not bashing him at all, but this is a statement that astrophysicist Stephen Hawking made. Probably one of the smartest people on the planets. This is what he said. We're just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. 
but we can understand the universe. Now, and we're an advanced breed of monkeys, but we can understand the universe. I, I'm not mocking him as an individual because it's a very sad statement that is completely absurd to anyone who is thinking above the sun. But if we're looking at life under the sun, that is the kind of thing that we end up with. Solomon gives us his understanding. The preacher gives us his understanding of the universe with life under the sun. He says this, I applied my heart, verse 13, to search out by wisdom all that is done. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done, and behold, all is vanity. It is a striving after wind. It's a very difficult business, this life, because it's all meaningless. The word vanity, we talked at length about that last week. If you weren't here, you might get the podcast, because it kind of laid the foundation for the entire book. We talked a lot about this word vanity. It's, it, it, uh, it doesn't mean proud or conceited. It means empty. It means futile. Uh, it means a vapor. Uh, that's what it means. And then he uses a very similar metaphor. It is striving after wind. Some people translate this shepherding wind. Now, we wouldn't use that statement, shepherding wind. We'd say it's like herding cats. It's, like, it's an impossible task. It's always like trying to herd cats. And what he's saying is trying to, this business that we have in life, it's like herding cats. It's impossible. It's meaningless. And then he gives us a proverb It's a book of wisdom, so he's going to give us proverbs, he's going to give us reflections, he's going to give us um, uh, poems. Here's Here's a proverb, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now the word crooked here doesn't mean corrupt or immoral, it it means literally crooked. It means bent. He's saying what is bent can't be straightened. Here's what he's saying, here's life. Life is messed up. Life is crooked. Life is bent, and you can't straighten it out. There's problems that you can't do anything with. You have a health problem that you can't fix. You have a relationship problem, and try as you might, you can't change it because you cannot change another person. So you're stuck with a relationship that's bad. Your job is not fulfilling. It is not going anywhere. It's not perhaps even meeting your needs. You can't find a spouse. And so it's bent. Life is bent for you right now. And you can't make that happen. You can't have children, perhaps, or the children you have aren't doing what you want them to do. Life is bent. You can't make them do what you want to do. So your life is bent. Someone you love dies early. That's crooked. That's bent when we look at life under the sun. There's suffering. There's injustice all over the world today. There's injustice in all corners of the world, and we can't fix it. Moreover, he says, the second part, what is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying life has deficits. It doesn't all add up. Life just doesn't add up to what you want it to be. This is what he said when I looked at everything on planet Earth under the sun from a horizontal perspective. This is what I concluded. Riken in his commentary that I just held up for you, he says this. Here's the summary of the two lines of the, of the proverb. Life is what it is, and there is nothing that we can do to fix it. Nobody's saying that'll preach. Um, life... You ever been to one of those churches where they say, turn to your neighbor and say, pastor does that? You ever been to that? 
Turn to your neighbor and say, God is good and you're going to make it. God is good and you're going to make it. He doesn't realize how awkward that is for everybody talking to their neighbor in the middle of the sermon, but... uh, those, those guys don't preach Ecclesiastes, because if you preach Ecclesiastes, you just turn to your neighbor and say, life stinks and you can't do anything about it. <laughs> so you turn to your neighbor, life stinks and you can't do it. Nice to meet you. <laughs> life stinks and you can't do anything about it. Yeah, nice to meet you too. What, what do you do with these passages of scripture? I'll never ask you to turn to your neighbor and say something. Turn to your neighbor and say, this is the only time Craig will ever ask me to do this. No, no, don't turn to your neighbor. Uh, Very well-meaning people say, turn to your neighbor. They're just trying to emphasize the point, so I'm not critiquing their hearts. I'm just saying, man, is that awkward talking to a stranger. So he is making clear that life is messed up and you can't fix it. And now he's going to say, and I'm qualified to make this assessment. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience and wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is striving after win. I, I, I know what is going on, he is saying. I have applied myself. I have greater wisdom than the people that preceded me. Um, I've even looked at what's the difference in madness and folly and wisdom, and that pursuit left me striving after wind. I was trying to shepherd the wind. I was herding cats. That did not work. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. What does it mean to be vexed? It means to be irritated or to be troubled, or to be frustrated. I mean, a high end of vexation could even be to be tormented, to be highly troubled. This kind of a thing, irritated. So he's saying, the further I got into it, this study, just absolutely the further my frustration grew. Because the deeper I get into it and the more observations that I make, the more meaningless it is. And and also he says it increases my sorrow. The more I look at all of life under the sun without reference to God, there is no answer for the suffering, for the injustice, for the unfairness, for the trouble, for the inequities, for the routine drudgery that just feels meaningless for the treadmill existence that we all go through without purpose. So the more my heart is growing in greater sorrow. And if it sounds like life is hopeless when you read this, then Ecclesiastes is succeeding. If we gloss over this, if we soften and smooth out the edges of Ecclesiastes... If we just sort of wink at the preacher uh, and just say, well, that's, that's the preacher and his observations. and um, No, but we want to hear him in his full force. And his full force is painting a devastatingly empty existence. Next, having exhausted his wisdom, next he says he's going to pursue pleasure. So for the first pursuit is wisdom, understanding all of life. The second pursuit is pleasure. And here, he is really going to give us some, some description. It's sort of the only memoir in all of Scripture, as I understand it. I mean, he, he gives a memoir here. This is what I did, and this is what I thought. This is a genre of writing that's very popular now, a memoir, but not really that much in the Bible. But this is his memoir. 
And in his memoir, I think he connects with us because when it comes to a road to find meaning, our culture is much more comfortable and much more familiar and much more in pursuit of pleasure than we are philosophical consideration on big questions like what's the point of life? The series is called What's the Point? So most of us aren't living... Um, most of us are living in a rat race. Most of us aren't living, sitting around, philosophizing about what is the meaning of life. But our culture is very much about what is pleasure and where can I find some? And where can I increase my pleasure? And so that's what he gives us in these 11 verses. And it's really fascinating. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you. This is an experiment. I will test you with pleasure. Come enjoy yourself. This guy is pleasure with a plan. This guy is hedonism on a spreadsheet. He is planning it. He is plotting it. He's saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to methodically pursue every you know, pleasure that I can in this life. I'm going to test my heart and see what comes, comes up from that, what, what the result is. So he starts with comedy. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is is it? He says that humor and laughing under the sun is foolishness. It is empty. You, you cannot laugh enough to cover the gaping hole of meaninglessness in your soul. Our souls are empty. They are barren. They are dry. And a laugh will not change the meaning of life for a person. It isn't lasting. We don't find purposeful living in comedy because it is not lasting. My wife and my sons, we watched a stand-up comedy routine this week that was very funny, and uh, I think my wife passed out laughing, and uh, it was very funny, uh, but I was laughing so hard I wasn't sure I didn't even notice, but it was very, very funny. But here's what I found. As much as, as hard as we laughed, um, you know, like the next day, the alarm clock still went off, and I went into work and had challenges like you have. And like today, I don't feel that what I watched is fueling my soul at all. We have talked about a few of the things the guy said afterwards, but ultimately, it's not like today I woke up and I said, oh man, what am I going to do today? Oh, remember when he said, okay, yes, now I've got a purpose. It's a momentary for, for someone who lived, now let me be clear, for someone living under the sun without reference to God, it's only a momentary band-aid on a gaping hole, which is the empty soul. That's all it is. No one goes to laughter and says, that answers the question, what's the point? Oh, I get it. No one. And so he said, I searched laughter and I searched pleasure and said, what use is it? Next, he goes to wine. I searched with my new. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body. Verse three. I searched with searched how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. So he goes to wine. There is some debate here about what's being talked about. Does he become a drunk? Does he try to party away? Uh, in life, or is he a connoisseur? The reason of wine, the reason people question that is because he says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom, and if he was fall down drunk, that probably doesn't mean 
um, guarding his heart with wisdom. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why anybody would be concerned. Uh, it's not like this guy's living by a moral code. Uh, we're going to find out. He uh, he just sleeps with a ton of women. So I'm not sure he's really concerned with moral code. I don't think he would have avoided drunkenness because that would somehow be a sin. Uh, that, that's really not the vantage point here. So I'm not sure. Was he drunk or was he really just saying, hey, I wanted to enjoy the aesthetic pleasures of wine, uh, the, the, you know, kind of as a connoisseur, the, the, the smell, the, uh, the taste, the color, whatever. Uh, my, my indication is that he is, he's drinking to lubricate the jagged edges of life. That's what I think is really going on. But if someone wants to say he's not, whatever, there was no answer in wine. Now, the Bible is not opposed to wine. We'll talk, I actually would like to teach on this, and I'm not going to do it today. Uh, but there are several commended uses of wine in the Scripture. But wine always comes with a warning in the Bible. And uh, don't, don't allow newfound freedom. If you grew up in fundamentalism and you somehow gained some freedom, don't allow that newfound freedom to cause you to miss the warnings of the Bible. Like Proverbs 20, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. That's what Solomon's talking about. Wine is a leak, can be, it can be uh, enjoyed as a gift from God, the Bible says that, but it can lead one astray. It can lead astray, and that's what he's talking about. I'm not pursuing life under God, I'm pursuing life under the sun, and he's being led astray by wine. He's trying to find an answer in a bottle. He's trying to cheer his body with a liquid. And just because it's been fermented, it does not change to be able to give an answer to life. He's trying to cheer his body, and there is no cheer. There is a hangover that leaves a person as empty as they were before. And maybe worse. It does not deliver. So, laughter, wine. What does he go to next? Next, he goes to great works. Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. Now, as I'm going to run through this list a little bit more quickly. It's materialism. It is life, uh, finding joy in what I own and what I accomplish and what I build. That's what it is. As we read this list, I want you to look at how many times uh, the items are plural, which shows, we talked last week about kind of the moss factor of, um, of uh, Solomon, that he had moss than all of us. And so uh, it, this weekend was Cinco de Mayo, so that's my cultural connection point there. But uh, um, he, he talks about his great works. I want you to look at how much he, these works reflect on him. And I want you to look at how much of them are plural, because it's really revealing as to what he's pursuing pleasure in. I made great works... Plural, verse 4. I built houses, plural. I planted vineyards, plural. For, what's the purpose of these? For myself. For myself. I made myself gardens, plural, and parks, and planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools, plural, from which to water the forest of growing trees. Do you see what he's doing? It's not like he's a king and these are public works for the good of the community. I built this glorious park so that the people of Israel could enjoy, so that all the little tykes could go down the Hebrew slide there or whatever it is. I built these tremendous parks. I built gardens so that everyone could appreciate the glory of 
God's created order. I, I planted vineyards so that wine would run freely throughout Israel. I did this, all this stuff for myself. All this for myself. Look what he says next. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had slaves and I had grandchildren slaves. He had so much stuff. He had so much property. All these houses, all, this, uh, all, the, all these gardens and all of these pools and these vineyards required workers. And so he gets slaves to take care of all of it. Look at verse 8. What does he go to next? So these are his great works. Next, silver and gold. Money. We would say investments. So those were his hard assets we just saw. These are his investments, his, um, his retirement plan, his mutual funds, his stocks, his gold, his silver. Literally for him it was silver and gold. Verse 8. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. I also had, verse 7, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So you see the me, myself, the comparison. I had more uh, herds and flocks than anyone. So that is power. He had more than anybody. Okay, now we'll go to gold and silver, verse 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasures of kings and provinces. What does that mean? Well, that means that he took the royal treasure from other nations. He defeated nations. That means he's powerful. And he had gold from provinces. That's taxation. So he has power. He's a ruler, and he's got all of these treasures from other people, which not only says, I got a lot, I got more money than I can count. It says, I'm ruling. I rule. That's what he's saying there. Next, he talks about art, specifically music. I got singers, both men and women. Now, we can run over that and go, okay, great. Man, he had all this stuff and he had, why is he mentioning singers? Because that is a luxury. This guy had choirs. I want you to imagine, we can't even imagine this. I want you to imagine life without recorded music. That's Solomon's world. So for us, we've got music on a computer. Uh, we've got music in our car. We've got satellite radio in our car. We've got Pandora on our computer. We've got an iPod. Uh, a lot of us have a smartphone, so we've got all kinds of music on our phone. I mean, who would have thought of that even when I was growing up? To think, oh, yeah, you'll be carrying around all your music on a phone one day. What do you mean carrying around a phone? Uh, how am I going to do that? How am I going to plug it in? You know, I mean, even when I was, I could not imagine walking around with that phone, that dial thing. I'm going to have all my music. If somebody, t- what are you talking about? You go into a restaurant, music. You go into a store, music. The only way Solomon could have music is to get live people who play and sing and stand right here. So if you wanted to hear what we heard this morning, you'd have to have all these people come over to your house and play for you. That is wealth. So when he's saying, I have singers, I can listen to music whenever, I can appreciate the art whenever I want because they're right there to sing for me. And probably if you sing and the king doesn't like it, uh, you know, America doesn't dial in and vote you off. Your head gets taken off. So we're away with those musicians. So you're playing for the king. I acquired all that. But you know what? Even if you are the only guy in the town, in the city, in the nation that gets music whenever he wants on demand, nobody has on-demand music, probably but the king. Even if you are the only guy with on-demand music, it's still 
the same old thing. And they can't learn a new song to add meaning to your life. Lastly, he goes to sex. Both men and women and many concubines. What are concubines? Well, they are the delight of the children of man, is what he says. A concubine in the ancient world typically was a woman, not always, but a woman who was not married to the king, may have been kind of part of the harem, but was available for sexual relations. Um, sometimes they were treated well. Sometimes they were, would be almost the equivalent of a wife, but because they were a lower status in society, they couldn't become a wife. So maybe they were poor but attractive. So the king says, okay, you can't marry, but you'll be a concubine. So some of them were treated well. Some of them would have been the equivalent of a sex slave. So he has concubines. Now, if it's... If it is Solomon writing this book, which I think likely it certainly is, in 1 Kings 11, we find out that Solomon had 700 wives. And the problem with Solomon was he took foreign wives. He was uh, intrigued by foreign beauty. He had foreign wives, and the Bible says that his heart clung to them. He clung to these foreign wives. And the Bible says that Solomon had 300 concubines. Solomon had 1,000 women... I would imagine, on the premises or near the premises for his uh, sexual fulfillment. So we just, we don't really, we don't have people like that in our culture. I mean, that's just at a level that no one's imagining. Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner's a Sunday school teacher compared to Solomon. He had a thousand women on the premises, likely. So that was his pursuit, sexual indulgence, a thousand different women. And here's his conclusion after all of this. Verse 9, I became great and surpassed all who were before me. My wisdom remained with me. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired. So if, if this list isn't impressive enough, just know this category. Anything I saw that I wanted, I did not keep my heart from it. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward. There was a reward in all of this. Certainly at the moment, I found pleasure in all of this. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. So Solomon is a guy who in his world, in his culture, with what was before him, had anything he wanted with regard to uh, possessions, houses, money, wine, literally. Literally. This, this could come from Ecclesiastes. Wine, women, and song. That's out of this chapter. Literally, that's what, that's what he had, everything. He had it all. Hedonistic excess, material excess. And the reality is, we can read some of this, and our first impulse often, this is revealing, our first impulse often isn't to pity him, but to envy him. Because this is the road our culture, I mean, anybody in our culture, whoa! That's what I, yeah, okay, that's my dream life. I didn't even know this, this guy's in the Bible. That's what I want to be. It's what I'm living for. But look what the conclusion is. Verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it all. And behold, that means look. People, I'm telling you my life, but look, he is saying. All was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Striving after wind. This word uh, means to try to... to, to shepherd the wind. I could not grab a hold of it. I could not direct it. It was vain, meaning it was meaningless. It was futile. It's like on a frozen day when you breathe out and your, your breath appears for a moment. That's what the word is. It's a vapor. 
But if you try to grab that, it's wispy, it's airy, it does not have content, it is not meaningful, it is not lasting. And so here's a guy at the end of his life who's saying, look, here's what I did my whole life, so listen to the end result. Here's where the pleasure road led. It led to emptiness. If you are in middle school, if you are in high school, or if you're in college here today, particularly, listen to what he is saying. This isn't just an old guy who's kind of losing his thinking. This isn't like, let's humor grandpa to tell us, yeah, don't do that, kids. Uh, Grandpa can't even remember probably what was going on. This isn't just like humor the older kind of guy. This is God speaking. This is the Holy Spirit of God who takes this guy, Ecclesiastes, and, and says, tell your story as a warning to all the young people and not-so-young people about where the pleasure road's really going to lead them. The pleasure road apart from God. The pleasure road lived under the sun, but not lived with reference to above the sun, God Almighty. Where does it lead? It leads to emptiness. Four times in this passage, he says, under the sun or under heaven. And he says, it all led to nothing. Listen, young people, you cannot get enough money that it'll be enough. You're not going to get a job. You're not going to make enough money. You're not going to have a lifestyle where you're going to say, that's enough. And some of the people my age in the room are starting to believe that more, what we may not have believed when we were young. And I haven't had near what his experience has been. But older people, they will tell you this is true. You cannot own enough. You cannot listen to enough. You can fill your life with music. You can take every nook and cranny of your life and have something playing to cover over the screaming emptiness that comes up when there's silence. When there's silence and you realize, I have no life, no purpose in my life, so I must fill it with something. You cannot listen enough so that you say, I've arrived. There's meaning. You cannot see enough. You cannot own enough. You cannot be powerful or respected enough. People bow down to this guy when he walks in, and whatever he says and snaps his fingers, he gets it instantly. You will never be that. I will never be that. And he says that power is not enough. You will not be able to have enough sex that life will be okay. You can't cover the emptiness. It won't go away. And people are trying and trying and trying. If I know a little more, I'll be okay. If I experience a little more, but it's always a little more and a little more. And someday somebody comes to the end of their life who's experienced it all. This guy literally has. And he says, it's a dead end. I went to the road and it's like the edge of the stage. I came to the road and it's imp- there's nothing there. It just stops. One of the ways to dismantle the idols of the world is to begin to see where do they lead ultimately and say, is that where I want to end up? But this is not the only perspective. There is life above the sun connected to Jesus Christ. All of this toil and emptiness he's speaking of, that's the fallout of the fall. The reason that there is no meaning in these things, this is not the way the world was created. This is because of sin. God created the world so that we would be experiencing enjoyment every second of every day. You want to talk about purpose? There was never a purposeless, meaningless moment in the Garden of Eden. All meaning, all the time. And 
Sin comes in. Sin is disobedience to God. And our sin breaks our relationship with God. It breaks our connection to God. And so sin offers all these promises. But rather than providing meaning, what sin does is it squeezes out the meaning of everything in life and empties it of real meaning. Now, I'm not saying there's not pleasure in sin, because there is. But Solomon says, yeah, there was pleasure in my toil, but what does it all end up? Where do you end up at the end of the day? And so that's what sin does. God created us to know him, to have a relationship with him. Without him, life is meaningless. But there is life in him and meaning. So we can be restored to him. Our sins can be forgiven by believing in Jesus Christ. God becomes man, comes to earth in Jesus Christ. Jesus dies for our sins so that our sins are forgiven. He's buried. He's raised from the dead. And if we have faith in him and believe that he is the one who died in our place for our sins, then we are reconnected to life because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so life changes from meaning to life becomes what it was meant to be. Jesus pushes back the effects of the fall, the fallout of the fall, he pushes it back. And he gives life so that those who know Jesus Christ can experience real love. We're reconnected to God, our Father. And we experience the love of God, the freedom of God, the meaning of life that we have in God. So that, here's the picture, for Solomon, nothing has meaning. For the Christian, everything can have meaning. That's what we talked about last week. Once you know Jesus Christ and have new life, then it's possible to experience joy in the most mundane tasks. It's possible to live our lives for the glory of God. It's possible to live our lives thanking God for what he's done. It's possible in the Bible, not only is it possible, but it's God's design. It's God's design that even in suffering, there is meaning. There's no meaning to suffering if you don't know God. But in God, there's meaning there that we even can experience the love and the care of God in our sufferings. Because the Father is caring for us. The shepherd is tending the sheep. The Spirit of God is living in us. So we have communion and connection with God. This is life. This is life. And the problem is many of us as Christians don't really experience that life in Christ because so much of the time we're either in fantasy world or in actual world going down a different path, which leads to emptiness. Emptiness. Now, in the minutes I have left, this is really important, so I'm going to try to cover this succinctly because here's what happens in the gospel. Jesus Christ comes and gives us new life, and he turns all of this upside down. I want to talk about the wisdom and the pleasure. I'm going to move over wisdom because we're going to talk about that later in the book, but I'm just going to go to this chapter 2 section on pleasure. God, who created pleasure, gives pleasure to the Christian. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 96. This is so much the answer to what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. Verse, psalm 16.11. I'm sorry, Psalm 16.11. You make known to me the path of life. Sounds very different. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Sounds very different. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what what does he say? There's a pathway in God. There's a pathway of joy, and at God's right hand are eternal pleasures. God is the creator and the provider of of pleasure. I can't run down everything he talked about, but in real quick fashion, uh, I would like to talk about laughter. I would like to talk about materialism. I would like to talk about sex really quick. We'll talk about wine another time. Uh, We will talk about um, music and art another time. But I want to talk about these three really quickly. 
when Solomon pursues laughter, there's an emptiness. But those who know Jesus Christ can experience a joy that is an enduring joy even in the midst of difficulty. It does not, it, it, it is not subject to circumstance because it is from Christ, it is something eternal in nature. And the very announcement of the gospel is about joy. So life of drudgery under the sun is meaningless. But do you remember in the scripture when the announcement, Jesus is not, he's just been born. No one even knows about him hardly yet. And the angels show up to make an announcement to shepherds, talk about drudgery, they're in the middle of just watching sheep at night. That would feel pretty meaningless. And he shows up to them and he says this, I'm here to announce good news of great joy. Today a Savior is born. Here's the announcement of the coming of Christ. Christ has come, it is good news, that means gospel, gospel means good news, and it is great joy for all people that a Savior has come. In Christ, there is a forgiveness of sins, there is a cleansing of a conscience, there is a rebirth and a new life, and there is a joy that cannot be experienced any other way. Jesus comes to, in fact, bring joy. Jesus, in chapter 15 of John, I was looking at this, in chapter 15 of John, Jesus is talking about the love of God for people. And this is what he says. John 15, 11. These things I've spoken to you about the love of God, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He's saying, I'm not just saying this so you'll be happy. I'm saying this so my joy, the joy of God will be inside of you. When I'm talking to you about the love of God and what that means, if you think about that and apply that, Jesus is saying, my very joy, the most joyful person to have ever lived, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, my joy will be in you. The Spirit will be in you. My joy will be in you, and your joy will be full. Here's the reality. If you know Christ, when your soul encounters and comes into contact with the truth of the love of God, the result is joy. The result is joy. It's not meaningless. It's the joy of God, His own joy in people. And no one can shake that. Persecution can't shake that. Sickness can't shake that. Poverty can't shake that. Nothing can shake that joy. Am I saying that all Christians are happy all the time? No, we are still experiencing the fallout of the fall. We are still living under the sun, even though we're in Christ. We have this dual existence. We're in Christ, but we still live under the sun. We're still fallen. One day we will know unceasing joy. Right now, we have access to joy and love in Christ all the time. And as we see life in him, we experience that more and more. Secondly, he found pleasure in his possessions. He had houses, vineyards, gardens, gold, silver, and it was all meaningless. He looks very rich, doesn't he? The reality is he's very poor. Depends on how you want to define prosperity and wealth. He had a lot of stuff and life was empty. He had everything imaginable that you could imagine physically to build or to have, and life was meaningless. He was hopeless. It meant nothing to him. I mean, I want to ask you a question. Who's the richer person? The person who has everything that can be provided, and life stinks. It's empty. It's drudgery. Or the person who has, well, let's say barely enough to get by, but has contentment and joy in God. Who's richer? Listen, I am all about prosperity theology. 
question is how do you define prosperity? Prosperity is not having more stuff. The Bible is a prosperity theology. Prosperity is not having more stuff. Prosperity is joy and contentment and satisfaction in Jesus. That's prosperity. That's prosperity. Listen to this verse, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 9. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What does Solomon say throughout? There's no gain. What, does, what is the gain under the sun? He says it all the time. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing. I cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. In Christ, there is tremendous prosperity available to us. There may be material prosperity. There may not. A lot of the people in the New Testament do not get uh, physical prosperity. They get jail. So we do not always get physical prosperity. God will meet our needs. That's the promise of Scripture. But there is the promise that in Christ there is contentment. There is contentment. Meaning comes not in what you have, but in knowing Christ. And when we know and experience Christ and live in the good of that, then we take what we have and we leverage it for his glory and his good. We use it. So houses, like he says, are to be used for our family and to extend with hospitality and care to serve others. Possessions are to be used for the glory of God. We, we, we work and we gather and we accumulate, which postures us to give and to bless in what is lasting. We earn to invest in, in the kingdom, in ministry. We enjoy a garden for the glory of God and we share it with others so that they enjoy it with the glory of God. That is real prosperity. Lastly, he mentions sex. I'm going to skip over music. He mentions sex. He has an endless variety of lovers, which is the fantasy of many men, many Christian men. And here's the reality. While no one today, certainly no one in our culture, has a harem like he does, there's a virtual harem that is readily available to every man in this culture with an internet connection or a smartphone. There is a virtual harem. And here is the pathway. Here is the pathway of pornography. I mean, he has physical relationship with all these women, but here is the pathway of pornography. A thousand, we know at least a thousand ladies he has access to, and he says, after all of that, I withheld nothing that looked good to me. You can fill in the blanks. I withheld nothing that I desired that looked good to me. And at the end of it, emptiness, meaninglessness. So if hundreds of lovers ends up in meaninglessness, where is the pathway of virtual lovers, which at best is a cheap imitation of physical lovers. If physical lovers ends up in meaninglessness, then the cheap imitation copy is just a copy of meaninglessness. It's worse than meaning. It's it's has less meaning than meaninglessness compared to what he experiences. It's emptier than his emptiness. One of the ways we 
tear down idols is to deconstruct and expose them for what they are. They offer promises of pleasure, and when we see the lies of what they offer, then it leads us to turn to Jesus. We see the glory of Christ when we see the emptiness of what else is offered. God has designed tremendous pleasure that is not found in a literal or a virtual harem of lovers. It's cataloged for you in wisdom literature for me in the Song of Songs. And what he says is that there is great delight, great pleasure ordained from God when one man and one woman enjoy the intimacy of sexual of a sexual relationship in marriage. And there God designs and intends tremendous pleasure and joy. And so the gospel really takes this meaninglessness and turns it on its head. The redeemed life holds out a hope for tremendous meaning. It, it, it holds out a hope for pleasure. Now, I don't want to build a false hope because we still live under the sun. I'm not saying that we're always going to be happy. Just pray this prayer and you'll always be happy with everything you have and say. You'll always have a fulfilling sex life. You'll always enjoy music. Turn to your neighbor and say, life is good. I mean, that's kind of, I'm not going to make that promise. I said, we're not that, we're not that way. But there is an enduring meaning in life. <clears throat> what a great hope the scripture holds for us to find purpose in our work, purpose in our eating, purpose in our drinking, purpose in our love, purpose in our marriage, purpose in our buying, purpose in our own, what we own, purpose in art, purpose in sex, purpose in wine, purpose in friendships purpose in serving the Lord, purpose in proclaiming this good news to others. Life is intended to be filled with meaning and purpose when we live it with a view that God has above the sun. We are rescued for an eternal joy, and that joy starts right now. At his right hand are eternal pleasures. That pleasure is to begin now in this life, in Christ, according to his will. There's suffering on the road, but even there is meaning. Even there is meaning. Ecclesiastes comes to us and he says, inspired by God, here's all the stuff I've done. I'm telling you where it's leading. Don't go down this road. Go down another. We all have that option today to turn to Christ. If you've never believed in him, to turn believingly and for the first time and trust in him. If you have believed in him, then look at the various things where we are pursuing fulfillment in life we may do some of those very same things, many of them, but they're infused with meaning and purpose when we're doing them with a view towards how can I please you and serve you and honor you and live for your glory in this? How can I be motivated by grace in this? How can I seek to communicate this good news of the good life to others? How can I live all of life, not in a secular and spiritual category, not in a Christian, non-Christian, how can I live all of life for the glory of God? There's pleasure and joy in that, and we'll spend the coming weeks unpacking that in further detail. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> we pray that you would show us the false paths and that we wouldn't end up on those roads with a bankrupt, threadbare, empty soul on our deathbeds. We pray, rather, that we would today embrace you and the gospel that you would shower us with your love and your life and your grace and your mercy and that those who are despondent would find joy, 
those who are those of us who are pursuing pleasures in the world that we'd find our pleasure in you i pray that you would renew our vision of work i pray that you would renew marriages in the room i pray that you would renew our joy in the simple tasks of eating and drinking I pray that you would renew the joy of fellowship in christ lord i pray that life would just start to taste good in jesus i pray that we would even taste the joy of the lord in our sufferings You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.